Amen. Thank you, ladies. Great thought. Great job. Same thing for those guys. Aren't we blessed? I was thinking back while they were all singing to days early on, 16 years ago, when we didn't even always have a special song. And uh, God's been good to us. Go ahead and get in your Bible to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. We have, as most of you know, been on Sunday nights going through a series on Bible doctrine. I want uh, us to understand what we believe and teach here and why uh, we believe and teach what we do. Uh, believers begin by learning what the Bible teaches to be sound doctrine, and then uh, disciples who want to be wiser and who would like to be more mature in their faith, they also learn why they believe the doctrines that they have been taught. Knowing what we teach and why helps give us perspective on everything we do here at Bible Baptist Church as well as what happens around us. It's important that we understand what we do because it is a biblical thing. It's important that we understand what we do because historical, biblical churches have done that. It's important to understand the things we do here because it's just the way we do them here as this particular body of Christ. And unfortunately, some mistakenly uh, think some of the things the church does were preference when in fact they were biblical things and they have changed things they shouldn't change. On the other hand, others take things that are really just uh, a way a congregation chooses to do things and they treat them like their key Bible doctrines. I pray God would give us discernment. Uh, we need to be strong in our faith and we will never be that way unless we understand what the Bible does teach and why uh, it teaches what it teaches. Sound doctrine, of course, is the key to our spiritual stability. Uh, it is the key to stability in life. It is the key to stability in our faith. And because the Bible warns that in the last days someone depart from the faith, the Bible also exhorts us to give attendance to doctrine, to take heed to doctrine, and it tells us to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered uh, for the, to the saints, and we will never contend or stand on what we ought to stand on if we don't know what the Bible teaches to stand on. We have now uh, spent eight messages on doctrines related to the ministry of the Holy Spirit and sinning against the Holy Spirit, and I do want to spend a couple of more weeks on a couple of key issues linked to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit because there are a couple of issues that cause great division among those who carry a Bible to church and claim to believe it. You see, the biggest difference in those who differ on the issues that I'm going to discuss over the next couple of weeks is not the sincerity of those who claim them. The difference is the teaching of the Scriptures versus personal experience of those who are involved. Uh, by the way, just to be really clear before I start, we ought to thank God for every sincere Christian who uh, carries a Bible, believes the Bible, sincerely tries to follow it, tries to live a sincere Christian life in our dark world, even if they don't believe what I'm going to teach uh, tonight and, Lord willing, next week. Uh, I also hope you understand the Bible has a lot of targets. Uh, one of the targets in the Bible uh, is our behavior. God cares about what we do and don't do. Another of the targets in the Bible is our heart. Uh, God cares about our affections, our emotions, uh, why we do what we do. Uh, 
Some parts of the Scripture are aimed at our mind. Uh, God cares how we think and what we believe because He knows when our thinking is wrong and our belief system is wrong, that ultimately our attitudes and behavior will be bad as well. Tonight I'm going to tell you right up front I'm aiming at your head rather than your heart. I want to impact how we think and how we believe about a particular issue. As Christian people, we will often be challenged whether we will believe what God has told us about an issue or believe something else. And I think it's probably much easier to interpret the Bible in light of our experiences instead of interpret our experiences in the light of what the Bible has to say. Uh, the Bible is 100% accurate. Uh, our interpretations of our experiences is not 100% accurate. Uh, some of our personal experiences and our feelings and our thoughts, to be honest with you, they are temptations from the devil to take us away from the faith. And the only hope we have of making sense of things is to put them in the light of the Scriptures. But it's not just easier to interpret our experiences in light of our experiences instead of the Bible. It's also easier to interpret the way we've been raised uh, in light of our personal experiences instead of the light of the Bible. Uh, tonight's thought is like that. Uh, I realize before I even begin that uh, many of you were raised differently and some of you have interpreted your personal experiences uh, some way other than in line with the Scripture. And I would just say to you as we begin, we are all challenged to believe God's Word. Uh, our subject tonight is the biggest practical difference between a biblical Baptist church, and not all of them are today, and the average charismatic church. And by charismatic, I mean Pentecostal, holiness, uh, Church of God from Tennessee. And uh, remember, the difference is not the sincerity of the, of the adherence. The difference is the teaching of the Scripture. If you this afternoon, if you would have went to the average church member from a charismatic church and asked them what happened to the sign gifts, they would say they happened at my church today. If you were to ask a knowledgeable biblical Christian the same question, they would say uh, some of the spiritual gifts that were active in the early church are no longer active today. Now in most cases our goal is to imitate the early church as it's revealed to us in the Bible. But did you know there is at least one way in which we're specifically told not to imitate the earliest Christian people. If you're able to stand, if you would stand tonight, please, in honor of the Word of God. The title of my thought is, What Happened to the Sign Gifts? And I get it, before we even start tonight, this is somewhat of an academic issue, but it has a lot of practical aspects in our life, which is why I think it's important that we take time for this. Mark chapter 16 beginning in verse 14, says, Afterward He, that's Jesus, appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat, and He upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen Him after He was risen. Now notice, 
this context is he's speaking to the disciples and he's not happy with them. He's not happy with them with the way they believed and listened to those who said he was alive. But even though he wasn't happy with them, notice he is going to still commission them to do his work. In verse 15, he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Uh, So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. Thank you. You might be seated. Though Jesus wasn't happy with the way his apostles had responded to the news of him being alive, he still commissioned them to preach the gospel to every creature. We read that in verses 14 and 15. And uh, though we should be baptized, it's not that those who are not baptized who are damned, it is those who do not believe who are damned. Verse 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned. And by the way, we all believe that if you are saved and baptized, if you believe and baptize, you're saved. We just understand from other scriptures that if you believe but are not baptized, uh, you're still saved. <laughs> because salvation is by grace through faith, not faith plus works of any sort. Uh, by the way, you ought to be glad tonight that uh, that is not true, that you have to believe and be baptized to be saved. Because if that were true, what it would mean is that everyone from a group of Christian people who sprinkle infants instead of baptized people, that no one from those groups could actually be saved. I mean, think about how terrible uh, that would be because there are all sorts of groups who never baptize anyone. Uh, By the way, biblical baptism is by immersion as a symbol of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus after you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Anything else is not baptism regardless of what some group or individual may call it. Now Jesus then, he makes a promise to the disciples that is a key to everything we read in the book of Acts and especially the early chapters of Acts. He's going to say, he says that these signs shall follow them that believe and there are five of them. Not one of them, not two of them, there are five of them. Verse 17, and these signs shall follow them that believe. Notice these five signs. In my name shall they cast out devils. That's the first one. Notice the second one. They shall speak with new tongues. They will speak languages they had never learned or had not known previous to that. Verse 18, they shall take up serpents. That's the third sign that will follow. The fourth one, and they shall drink, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. That's the fourth sign to follow. Notice the fifth sign. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Now, all of us here, just like people back then, would consider all of these significant signs. And if any of them actually happened, 
if someone actually uh, who was from Nicaragua, who knew nothing about English, spoke to us in clear, understandable English, and they'd never studied the language, we would be very inclined to think, wow, that's a miracle from God. I'm interested in what they have to say. If one of us had taken our child to the doctor, and the doctor says, hey, what they have, they, their, their leg is broken, They're, they have a, uh, some obvious medical problem, and that person came up and actually made it better. It was not something that you wondered whether they were really sick before. I mean, actually made it better. Any of these signs would be significant enough that we would say, you know what, I want to listen to what this person has to say. Now, not only did Jesus say in verse 17, these signs would follow them that believe. Notice the fulfillment of that in verse 20. They went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Did you notice how that's linked to the phrase in verse 17? These signs followed the disciples as they preached, confirming the word just like Jesus told them it would. Hear me when I say this, true signs from God confirm the word, they do not contradict the word. These signs showed everyone who listened that the message these messengers had to say was really from God. These signs showed that these messengers were from God because what they did was supernatural. I remind you that at the time of the apostles and the early Christian ministry, there was no written New Testament to confirm their message. God sent signs at that time to confirm their message. Hear me when I say it is grossly inconsistent for those who believe these sign gifts are still active today to only pick a couple of them that they like. There are five of them here, each equally listed. Now I have heard of a lot of people who claim to speak in some heavenly gibberish or healing as a sign. I've even heard of a few who handle poisonous snakes as a sign. But why just pick those? Listen, the vast majority of those who believe their heavenly gibberish and healing is a sign, they would never pick up a poisonous snake. Never. Uh, and I have yet to hear of anyone drinking poison as a sign. <laughs> yet all five are linked together. By the way, I don't recommend you pick up poisonous snakes on purpose, and I also do not recommend you drink poison on purpose to demonstrate that your message is true. Uh, <laughs> All five of these signs in some way or another are manifested in Paul in the book of Acts. Now, I, I know technically Paul was bitten by a poisonous snake rather than drinking poison and remain unaffected, but I suspect that if we knew the whole story of the ministry of the Apostle Paul, that there would also be a couple of accounts of where his enemies tried to poison him, and it was ineffective, just like Jesus said, would be a sign. Supernatural signs confirm the message and the messenger, and we see that happening over and over again in the book of Acts. See the word confirmed with signs. Go ahead and go in your Bible to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. My voice is still a little rough from uh, speaking a lot. Uh, I guess it was the week before last. I don't even remember anymore. But hopefully it'll be good enough to get 
through the message. Uh, the word was confirmed with signs in Pentecost. Uh, Peter preached a message to the people who had just crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that they spoke in other tongues. In fact, it lists 14 distinct languages. Languages that were understood by someone in the crowd. That sign confirmed his message to be from God. Notice in Acts chapter 8, in verse 5, as Philip takes the message to the Samaritans, Acts 8, 5, then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them. And many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. He preached Christ to a group of people who needed to hear of Christ. God confirmed that message with healings and him casting out devils. Uh, turn up a few pages to Acts chapter 15. Uh, Judas and Silas were sent to the city of Antioch after the gospel had went there and was effective. And they had a message from the church there in Jerusalem. And notice when they preached it in Acts chapter 15, verse 30. So when they were dismissed, they came to Antioch. And when they were that gathered the multitude together, they delivered the epistle, which when they had read, they rejoiced for the consolation. And Judas and Silas, being prophets also themselves, exhorted the brethren with many words and confirmed them. How did they confirm them? With signs following. Because that's the way Jesus said that the word would be confirmed in that time. Uh, turn your Bible up to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, because the author of Hebrews, I think the Apostle Paul, uh, is recounting and remembering those who had heard personally of Christ through one of the apostles. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, it says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard Him. How did God confirm it? God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to His own will. In reading in Acts 2 and Acts 8 and Acts 15, the remembrance of those days in Hebrews chapter 2, it is exactly what we would expect after reading what Jesus told his apostles at the close of the Gospel of Mark. Signs and sign gifts promised by Christ were given by God to confirm their message at a time when the apostles were alive and carrying the message of Christ to a world who had never heard of Christ. They confirmed their message at a time when there was no written New Testament to confirm the accuracy of what they had to say. Hear me when I say this. All through the book of Acts, there were false apostles, false prophets, false teachers, teachers teaching things of all sorts. How were people supposed to know what was the true message of God and what was a false message? I mean, think about how incredible this message would have been when the apostles took it to their world. Imagine some guy shows up and you've never heard of the name of Jesus, you don't know a thing about the Bible, and somebody comes to you and says, listen, God was born in the virgin womb of a woman named Mary. And then God the Son lived a sinless life, 
He opened blind eyes. He unstopped deaf ears. He raised the dead. And then he allowed his enemies to kill him. But then uh, he rose again from the dead to prove who he was. And he wasn't dying for his sins. He was dying for yours. He's coming back again. And if you would believe on him and receive him, you can be saved and forgiven. What an incredible message to hear for the first time. And so in order to confirm that message, to be a message from God, God gave these signs and wonders to the early apostles and the early Christian. God confirmed the words with signs then. He confirms the word with Scripture today. By the way, I hope you've come to realize that most times of human history were not times when God was doing great and obvious miracles. Great supernatural signs were given in times of great transition to help people believe and recognize what was going on. I mean, think back in the history that we know of in the Scriptures. I mean, when God was, had sent Moses to deliver the people of Israel from Egypt. I mean, great signs and wonders. Why? So people would know that Moses was sent by God. And that the message that he had was from God. I mean, think about the time when God transitioned from the judges and kings to the prophets. And Elijah and Elisha did great things, incredible miracles. All God demonstrating, hey, beginning this season, I'm going to speak to you through the prophets. I mean, think about the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. An incredible transitional time when the Son of God walked upon the face of the earth and all that He did and God confirmed Him to be from God through signs and wonders. Think about the time in the book of Acts and the transition from law to grace, from the physical ministry of Jesus to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. God did incredible miracles in that sign time also and you read the early chapters of the book of Acts is literally just filled with incredible things. I mean, imagine the shadow of Peter passing by someone and them being healed. Imagine taking a handkerchief that Paul had and taking that to someone who was sick and them being healed. I mean, it was an incredible time of transition and God did incredible signs in those times to confirm the Word. By the way, there's a great future time of transition as well. The time of the Antichrist. When the Antichrist and the false prophet will square off against the two good witnesses sent by God and the Antichrist and false prophet will be doing great signs and wonders. And the two witnesses from God will be doing great signs and wonders. Those signs and wonders done by the Antichrist will be real and they will not confirm the Word. They will contradict the Word. And the signs and wonders done by the two good prophets sent from God to warn Israel and the world, uh, they will confirm the Word, and anybody who wants to follow God will know who's true and who's false from the Scriptures. Did you know that the Bible also speaks of a time when the signs and sign gifts would no longer be act active. When the transition would be over. See, when we understand that the purpose of the signs and sign gifts was to confirm the Word at a time when the apostles did not have a written New Testament, it makes perfect sense that there would be a time when that transition would be over. 
when we understand that these great signs and wonders only occurred in times of great transition, it makes perfect sense that there would come a time when those signs and wonders would be over. But by the way, that doesn't mean God doesn't heal. It doesn't mean God doesn't do miracles. Uh, God is still a great healer. He's still an omnipotent God. He still does miracles. But it's very different for us to pray and God to do those things from time to time than to expect them week after week after week to confirm our faith. Our faith is not confirmed by these great signs. Our faith is confirmed by this great book. Go in your Bible, please, to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. Paul here in our text is going to contrast the love that never fails with some spiritual gifts that would clearly cease. Notice here in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 8, Paul says, Charity never faileth. But whether they be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Now he's going to illustrate what he just said with three illustrations. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. Notice the second illustration. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Here's the third one. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. Now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. Now Paul here in verse 8 lists three specific gifts that he said would cease to exist. Did you catch them in verse 8? Prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. Uh, and by the way, uh, these, though these are the only ones mentioned here, they're not the only sign gifts. And as we go through the New Testament, and we, we were following a timeline, we would find out that as the timeline goes on, it's exactly like what we would expect, that as time goes on and the New Testament is beginning to be complete, that you see less and less of these sign gifts that are constantly in place early in the book of Acts. Keep your hand there in 1 Corinthians 13, but go up in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Of course, in 1 Timothy, that's near the end of Paul's ministry. And 2 Timothy, of course, is the very last days of his ministry. But in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 23, notice the advice Paul gives Timothy. He says, drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. Did anybody ever wonder, why didn't Paul heal him? Well, why did he tell him to use grape juice for the medicinal value of fruit juice? Why didn't Paul just heal him? from his often infirmities. I'll, I'll tell you why. Because the time of the apostles was coming to a close and the New Testament was getting closer and closer to completion. I'll turn up in your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Hey, listen, there were times Paul did great miracles. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 19. 
It says, 2 Timothy 4.19, Salute Prisca and Aquila, the household of Anesiphorus. Erastus abode at Corinth. Here it is. But Trophimus have I left at Miletum sick. Why did he leave him sick? Why wouldn't he heal him? If healing is always God's will and the sign gifts were always just as active as they were early in the book of Acts, why, why would he leave Trophimus sick? I mean, listen, what kind of a hard heart would you have to be if you had some co-worker in the faith and you could heal them and make them better simply because you had the gifts of healing and you didn't do it? Listen, I, I, hundreds of times as I sat by the bed of somebody with cancer or something going on bad in their life, I wish I could have simply have put my hands on them and prayed, oh God, uh, take care of this and heal them. You're Jehovah Rapha. You're the God who heals us. There's nothing too hard for thee. Oh God, do this. But I can't. Do I pray for them? Does God heal sometimes? Absolutely. But the sign gift in the sense that God always heals, that is past. The sign gifts passed away with the death of the last apostle and the completion of the New Testament. Go back to 1 Corinthians 13. You should be there. See, you and I now have a complete written copy of God's message. And so that we in our hands can hold and we can carefully examine and we can study and you and I can either confirm or reject a messenger or messenger to be legitimately from God. It's what the Bible does. Now, don't get me wrong. It was an awesome season when the signs and sign gifts were a part of the transitional time. Wouldn't you love to have been there when people just bring uh, people and lay them on the side of the road and Peter's shadow just, they get up one right after the other when his shadow passes. I mean, wouldn't that have been awesome? By, by the way, none of these charlatans, uh, I'm sorry, big word, fakes uh, on, on, on television are actually doing what they say they're doing. There have been multiple incidences after these great, quote, healing crusades where people went back to the people who had allegedly been healed and they asked for documentation of a proven medical uh, disorder and then documentation of a proven healing. Listen, they don't exist. Listen, the healings of Jesus and Peter and Paul. Listen, when you grow an arm on a maim, maimed limb, uh, the doc says, hey, I, can't, I don't understand that. But we learn here in verse 8, it says, charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Prophecy in the sense of knowing the future, that was temporary. He said that would fail. Uh, keep your hand or go into Acts 21. There's a good example of, of what that gift looked like when it was actually active. He said, Brother Wally, I don't like what you're saying tonight. I know such and so, and they're a godly person, and they believe that they can speak in tongues and do this healing. Hey, listen, I don't debate that they're Christian. I don't debate their sincerity. I, I don't debate that they can be godly people. But I'm just telling you, the Scripture is different on this issue. Here's a good example of the spiritual gift of knowledge in Acts chapter 21 in verse 10. It says, And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle, that's like his belt, 
and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle, shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Uh, that's the spiritual gift of prophecy, speaking forth the future. And by the way, that happened. Uh, in 2009, Pat Robertson predicted a terrorist attack on the United States before the end of the year that would have the devastation of a nuclear war. Benny Hinn predicted that homosexuals in America would be destroyed uh, by fire from the Lord in the mid-1990s, resulting in many being saved. In more recent times, you could look up uh, individual after individual who, A, prophesied that Donald Trump would be reelected, or B, prophesied that COVID would end and God was going to wipe it off the face of the earth. Hear me when I say, when someone says, thus saith the Lord, and it is followed by some prediction of the future, if that doesn't happen, get out of there. Get out of there. Thus saith the Holy Ghost, blah, blah, blah. If it doesn't happen, they're a false prophet. Uh, no one who has any attention to detail in the Scriptures ought to be listening to any of those men at this point. Keep your hand there in 1 Corinthians 13. So we'll go back to Deuteronomy chapter 18 because God taught His people how to handle prophets who predicted some future event that didn't occur. By the way, God is in the business of preparing His people. Uh, what loving parent doesn't do everything they can to prepare their children against the different assaults that life is going to bring their way. And our loving Father is a better parent than any of us, and it's no surprise that He bolstered up, He prepared His people for what would happen. And by the way, this was a preparation for the last uh, time, uh, all the way from Moses' time, just uh, prior to, I guess, about 1490 B.C., but this is especially applicable to Israel in the end times when the Antichrist is going to be fooling them. Notice in Deuteronomy 18, 22, it says, When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken, but the prophet hath spoken it presumptuously, thou shalt not be afraid of him. Don't listen to that guy anymore. You got good reason, God says, to fear somebody I sent. But if somebody is using my name and predicts a future event that doesn't happen, you don't, need to, you don't need to be afraid of them anymore at all. And by the way, God also prepared His people for false prophets who would predict things that happened, but lead His people astray. Notice, go back a few chapters to Deuteronomy 13. By the way, all the Bible's profitable. I'm glad our Father cares about our stability. Deuteronomy 13 verse 1 says, If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and giveth thee a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder come to pass, wherever he spake unto thee, saying, Let us go after other gods which thou hast not known, and let us serve them. Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God proveth you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Did you hear that? If some prophet stands up and predicts a future event and it comes true, but their message is contrary to what I've already told you, 
I'm allowing that to happen to test you. To see whether you will believe your eyes or believe my words. By the way, it's going on everywhere. You may or may not believe this, but I believe the focus on signs and wonders and all these things of the last 120 years that began with what was called the Azusa Street Revival, I believe that is all a preparation for the Antichrist when people will be more concerned about signs and wonders than truth. Back to 1 Corinthians 13. Signs never contradict the Word. Signs from God, they confirm the Word. Always. Not only does he say that the spiritual gift of prophecy and the sense of speaking in the future would fail, he also says that knowledge was temporary. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 8 says, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Notice the next item that's going to cease is tongues. They were temporary. The spiritual gift of tongues is speaking an earthly language that you've not previously studied or known. Now, tongues were a favorite gift of the carnal Corinthians. It was the gift they most abused. And I'm sure when Paul said this to them, it stung them. Hear me when I say there's an obvious reason that tongues are not mentioned in any of the other of Paul's eight letters to churches, and it's not mentioned in the four letters he wrote to pastors, to church leaders. Say, what is that reason? Tongues was never intended to be what some groups of people have made it today. Say, how do you know? The Bible. The Bible. So tongues would cease. Prophecies would fail. Notice in the middle there it says, and they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. And this sign gift of knowledge was having new revelation from God things that were not said by Jesus, things not written in the Old Testament. Turn up just to 1 Corinthians 15 is a good example of it. The New Testament uses the word mystery. Previously unrevealed truth. Just like a mystery book has a truth that is hidden all the way to the end, a mystery in the New Testament is a truth that's always been a truth, but it was something that God didn't make clear until New Testament days. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.51 is an example of that. It says, Behold, I show you a mystery. What's the mystery? What's a previously unrevealed truth? We shall not all sleep, uh, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, the twinkling of an eye, the last trump, for the dead, for the trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. Uh, that's not revealed in the Old Testament, that when the final trumpet sounds, that there'll be some people who didn't need to die. I, I know it was pictured by Enoch. I, I know it was pictured by Elijah, but you wouldn't know that it pictured that without that. It was a mystery. And in a sense of new knowledge, that was going to pass. You say, why? Because the apostles were going to be gone. The New Testament was going to be complete. Paul wanted the Corinthians to focus on the more excellent way rather than the temporary sign gifts they enjoyed so much. And the Holy Spirit then, through Paul, reveals the event that will precipitate this great change. Notice in verses 9 and 10. By the way, I'm just teaching the Bible. I I know this is a hard thing. Many of us know they're good people. They're they're godly people. They, They love Christ. 
Uh, they love the church. They carry a Bible. Uh, I do not dispute their sincerity. I do not dispute their godliness. I dispute their belief on this issue. And you and I are challenged whether we'll believe the Scripture or not. He tells us what event's going to precipitate these things to fail. Notice in verse 9, he says, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. Here it is. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Notice it doesn't say when he which is perfect is come. When that which is perfect is come. This is not talking about the return of Christ. This is talking about the completion of the Scriptures. And he uses three illustrations to make sure we understand that. The first illustration is a child versus an adult in understanding. Verse 11, when I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. The first illustration is having a child's understanding, impartial, imperfect, versus an adult understanding. <clears throat> Excuse me a second. And at that time when the sign gifts were active, and they were when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, uh, they had partial knowledge. But there would be a day when they would have full knowledge. And they would have an adult understanding. And they wouldn't need those childish things anymore. The second illustration in verse 12. Now we see through a glass darkly. Now this could be two different things. Glass in the Bible, when you read it like that, is oftentimes, usually, uh, it's a mirror. And, I mean, you've heard a mirror called a looking glass. Um, and glass mirrors in those days were not like mirrors today where you had perfectly clear glass and you looked through at a polished silver background and you saw your image perfectly. In those days, it was generally brass. And it was polished brass. And so you never really, in a mirror, got to exactly see what we can see today looking in a mirror. But it also says through. And so it may, instead of speaking about a mirror like normally the Scriptures teach, it could also be talking about the way glass in those days was not perfectly clear like it is for us. The point is simply all the same. Is that in those days you couldn't see clearly whether you saw through the glass of that day or whether you looked at your reflection in the mirror of those days but there was going to come a day when you would see face to face. In those days, it was not clear. In our days, with the completion of the New Testament, it is clear. And then the final illustration he uses, he says, Then shall I know, even as also I am known. Uh, they had partial knowledge, but they would have full knowledge. And in the end, Paul wants to make sure they understand that the superior things are not temporary. The superior things are permanent. They're eternal. And he does that in verse 13. Now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. Do you ever wonder why? Why is the greatest of faith, hope, and charity charity? By the way, faith is great. Hope is great. Why is charity greatest? And in keeping with the theme of temporary things versus eternal things, understand that faith is temporary. That there's a day when our faith will become sight in heaven. We don't need faith anymore. Uh, hope is temporary. If you know Christ, there's a day when all your hope will be reality. 
and in heaven there's no more hopes, you have it. But on the other hand, because God is love, love is eternal. And love will be just as real and just as important in heaven as it is today. And just like the Scriptures were superior to the temporary sign gifts, the eternal love of God, because God is love, is superior to the temporary things that were good, like faith and hope. To anybody who honestly considers the sign gifts in light of the Scriptures, they passed away with the death of the last apostle and the completion of the New Testament. It doesn't mean God doesn't heal. It doesn't mean God doesn't do miracles. And if knowing that causes you to not have any faith to pray, you're taking this wrong. But it does mean that these sign gifts were sent to confirm the Word. And that means no one in this room tonight, or anywhere else for that matter, has a spiritual gift of healing, or the spiritual gift of prophecy in the sense of speaking the future, or the spiritual gift of tongues, or the spiritual gift of interpretation of tongues. Those things were all temporary. Now I know what I talked about. It's a little more complicated than some of you prefer. But I want you to understand this is an important doctrine because it directly affects our stability. And I just remind you one last time, it is not the sincerity of those who believe they speak gibberish or hold healing service that's in question. To me, that's not a question. The issue is the truth. Will we interpret our experiences in light of the Scripture, or will we interpret the Scripture in light of our experience? Truth produces stability, and it sets us free. Amen? You quietly stand.